0: Six times. That's how many times the Titanic was contacted warning of fields of icebergs in their path. Six times. Six warnings against disaster. And... One of the many tragedies of the Titanic is this. No one ever acted upon that very important message. Well, this morning I want to share with you a message that is meant to save us from disaster. And this message is so important that it calls for a response now I want to show you this in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, as we continue our study, line by line, verse by verse, through this wonderful New Testament letter. Acts chapter 13. We'll begin reading in verse 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. In Acts thirteen thirteen, the Bible says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that's on the island of Cyprus, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, that's in Asia Minor. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. More about that when we get to chapter 15. But verse 14 says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day... He led them out of it, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years." And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John, John the Baptist, was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. In other words, John the Baptist is saying, I am not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent, watch this, the message of salvation. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And Lord, we are here to exalt the Lamb who was slain. We are here to worship Jesus, the one who is high and lifted up. We are here to be in your presence, to hear from your word, so that we might be changed. And Lord, I ask that you would work in such a way that we would leave this place more deeply in love with Jesus than when we walked in. God, that we would leave with our lives transformed. That we would leave saying, what a mighty God we serve. Lord, that we would leave saying, hallelujah, what a Savior. Would you move in our midst in that way, Holy Spirit of God. Would you anoint me with power as I preach and would you anoint the hearers. Give us all, Lord, Open eyes to see the truth of Scripture and give us, Lord, willing hearts to obey what we see. And we'll thank you for that grace. We love you today. We praise you. We thank you for your presence. And we lift up this prayer to you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. In this section of the book of Acts, we see that Antioch in Syria... Uh, had a church that was started in a supernatural way. God moved with power in that city. And this church gathered together for worship, and the Holy Spirit said to the church, set apart from me uh, Paul and Barnabas for a missionary journey. And so the church at Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas on what scholars call the first missionary journey. And they leave Antioch, and they sail to Cyprus, probably because that was the... uh, the, the hometown of Barnabas. They spend some time in Cyprus sharing the gospel, and God moves there. And then they leave Paphos in Cyprus, and they begin to sail across the Mediterranean toward Asia Minor. They make the 175-mile trip to Perga. And then, the Bible tells us, they went on a journey by foot on a road called the Via Sabast to Antioch, Pisidia. That was about a 125-mile trip. And I don't want you to confuse Antioch-Pisidia with Antioch in Syria. Antioch-Pisidia was in Asia Minor. Antioch, the church that sent them out, was located in Antioch of Syria. And when they arrive in Antioch-Pisidia, they go to the synagogue. This was sort of Paul's custom on his missionary journeys when he went to a city that had a a gathering of Jewish people. He would go to the synagogue, their place of worship on the Sabbath day when they gathered. And he would seek to, to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he would go uh, and speak to the Gentile people living in that area. But he would start with the synagogues. And same here in this text. He goes to the synagogue. He and Barnabas and the synagogue officials say, we have some visiting folks here with us. Maybe they knew Paul's background as being a Pharisee trained by the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. And they say, "Uh, uh, Paul, do do you have any word for the people? And so Paul stands up and he begins to preach a wonderful sermon, which we just read the first part of this morning. And so I want to highlight some things from this sermon that Paul preaches. And you need to understand that it's hard to preach a sermon about a sermon. That's what I'm about to do. I'm about to preach a sermon about his sermon. And I think you'll see just how powerful this sermon is that Paul preached. And specifically, there are four realities that we see here in this sermon that I want to highlight for you because there are some things that, that we're reminded of, some things that we are taught in this sermon. So let me give you these four things. Let me walk you through these four things. Number one, this sermon teaches us about the nature of the Bible. It teaches us about the nature of the Bible. Now look what it says there in verse 16. Paul stood up motioning with his hand and he said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Then he says, The God of his people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And so Here, Paul is talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about Genesis when God chose Abraham to make his descendants a great nation. He's talking about Exodus when God delivers the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And then in verse 18, for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. You can read about that over in uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. You can read about that in the book of Joshua. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So he mentions the book of Judges, and then he mentions 1 Samuel, where God raises up Samuel to lead his people. Then verse 21 says, "...they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years." When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. That story can be found in 1 and 2 Samuel. So notice here, Paul is preaching a sermon based upon the Old Testament. But did you notice, when I read this earlier, how seamlessly Paul went from talking about the Old Testament to the New Testament? Look what it says there. He says, verse 22, I found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. See how he just seamlessly makes that transition from talking about uh, David and God making a promise to David that someone from his descendants would always reign on the throne. And then he says that promise was fulfilled when God sent the Messiah, God the Father sent the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So he just he just easily transitions from the Old Testament to the New Testament as he talks about John the Baptist and he talks about Jesus Christ. What do we learn from that? He's telling one story, but notice he's he's mentioning things that happened in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's what we learn, and this is so important. It will change the way you read the Bible. The Bible is one big story of redemption. It's one big story of redemption. Now, I know that the Bible consists of 66 books, and I know that those books are collected in two different testaments, and I know that those 66 books were written by over 40 authors in three languages on three continents over a period of 1,500 years. I know all of that, but is it amazing to consider that these 66 books all are Unified? They're all talking about the same thing. They're all telling the story of how God planned to send a Savior for sinners. That's what the entire Bible is about. It's one big story of redemption. There's a beautiful unity in the 66 books. There's a beautiful unity in the Old and New Testaments because they're not separate. They are are one Big, beautiful story. God sees that mankind has fallen, so he raises up a nation through Abraham. He builds up that nation, protects that nation, preserves that nation, so one day he can send a Messiah through that nation who would come to this earth, die on the cross, rise from the dead, so that we might be saved. That's the story of the Bible, the the big picture story. I like how James MacDonald says it. The Bible was inscribed over a period of Two thousand years in times of war and in days of peace, by kings, phys- physicians, tax collectors, farmers, fishermen, singers, and shepherds. The marvel is that a library so perfectly cohesive could have been produced by such a diverse crowd over a period of time which staggers the imagination. Jesus is its grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God is its end. Isn't that awesome! The, these sixty six books are all. Telling one big story. And when you begin to read the Bible through those lenses, you see how it all fits together, how God works it all together, and it is beautiful to behold. And so let me say it like this The Bible is a book that is all about Jesus. The entire Bible is all about Jesus. I like the way that Adrian Rogers said it. The Bible is a hymn book. It's all about him. It's all about him. Do you remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection with two of his disciples? They didn't know it was Jesus. But on that road to Emmaus, Jesus began to walk them through the Old Testament. And it says there that he showed them how the Old Testament concerned him. How the Old Testament pointed to him. It's all about him. It's all one big story of redemption. Jesus is the Redeemer. So the Bible is all about Jesus. We have a children's Bible we use called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I love the byline of that Bible. It says, every story whispers his name. And no matter where you're reading the Bible, there's a road back to the redemptive work of Christ. Every story whispers his name. Now let me illustrate kind of how this could happen. 66 uh, books and uni- unity and all of that. How, did, how does this happen? Well, let's just say that we chose five people from our church family to write a history of Longview Point Baptist Church. And we commissioned you to write the history and we broke up the 13 years of our existence. wouldn't be a very long book. But we we, we broke up the 13 years of our existence among the five different writers. And we said, we want you to take these different periods and write the history of our church. But we took one step to make sure history was accurate we chose a core group member that's been here from the very beginning and we said this core group member we want you to oversee the entire project and make sure that what is being written is accurate now when these five writers are done you would have different types of writings different types of vocabulary different styles but because there was one person overseeing the entire project what they would have would be accurate see how that works Five different writings, but with a unity and with an accuracy. And that is a a faint picture of the Bible, but it's not a complete picture. Because as these 40 different authors were writing the 66 books of the Bible, it's not just that the Holy Spirit was overseeing the accuracy of what they were, were writing. The Holy Spirit was actually breathing through those writers, so they were writing down exactly what he wanted them to write down. That's called the inspiration of Scripture. And because God breathed through human instruments to write down exactly what he wanted written, his word, the Bible is truth with no mixture of error. And because the Holy Spirit breathed through these 40 different authors, over 66 books on three continents using Three languages over 1500 years, the Bible has an amazing unity because ultimately it all has the same author, the Holy Spirit, right? And we see this in this sermon. Paul just seamlessly goes from Old Testament to New Testament. Why? It's all one big story. Keep that in mind as you read the Bible, and the Bible will, will take on a new dimension in your life, and will be thrilling as you read it and see this story in all its different facets. But there's a second reality in this sermon that I want you to see. We've talked about the nature of the Bible, but also we see in this sermon something of the nature of the cross. The nature of the cross. Look what it says there in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this Salvation. Now he's going to get specific about the work of Jesus that, that purchased our salvation. He says in verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him In a tomb. Here, Paul is preaching about the cross. And here's what we learn about the cross from this sermon and from the rest of God's Word. The cross was carried out by men, but ordained by God. The cross was carried out by men, but ordained by God. Did you see the interplay in this text? Did you notice what he said? He says, there in verse 27, the end of verse 27, that these, these men that put Jesus to death, the Jewish leaders that, that plotted for his death and the Roman executioners that carried out his death, these, these men, it says at the end of verse 27, it says, "...they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath." but they fulfilled them by, con- 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 by condemning him. So here's what he's saying. The Bible said that God was going to send his son to die. The Old Testament spoke of the, the sacrificial atoning work of Christ. And, and yet these men thought they were in control. They were condemning him. They were putting him to death. But he says here they were just fulfilling the word of God. They were just carrying out what God said was going to happen. And then look what it says in verse 29. When they had carried out all that was Written of him, they took him down from the tree. So when they killed him, just like the Bible said they were going to, they took him down and put him in a tomb. Jesus died, put to death by the hands of wicked men, but all of this was ordained in the plan of God. That's what we learn or are reminded of concerning the cross. So here's the deal. You can't stop God, right? You, you can't stop him For fulfilling his purposes. Even these men who were committing a sin by putting Jesus to death. They were evil. They were wicked. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And they thought they were taking care of the problem. But really they were just carrying out what God said was going to happen. God used their sin and wickedness to fulfill his purposes. How do you defeat a God like that? And so the cross was carried out by men. It was ordained by God. Which leads us to this question. Why in the world would God ordain? Before the foundations of the earth, promised in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament, why would God ordain that his son come to this earth and die at the hands of cruel Roman soldiers? Mocked, maligned, mistreated. Why would God the Father do that? Well, here's the answer. God planned and orchestrated the death of his son because of his love for us and ultimately, ultimately, for the glory of his name. Look what it says in verse 26. Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. In other words, Jesus Christ went to the cross, crucified by men, orchestrated by God, so that he could provide you salvation, so he could provide you eternal life. That reminds me of John 3.16 when it says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. The reason God planned and orchestrated the cross is because of his love for you and for me. He sent his son to die on the cross in our place to take the punishment that you and I deserve. God loves you. And ultimately, when the the dust of human history settles, you know who's going to get the glory for it all? Our great God will. Because the way he orchestrated the salvation for you and for me. It's awesome how God had the wisdom and has the wisdom and had the ability and has the ability to carry out redemption for sinners like you and for me. I was thinking about this. I thought about my dad. You know, growing up, uh, there there was really nothing my dad couldn't fix. I mean, he was a handyman and and, and he would come across some issue at the house or around the house and and he had the the wisdom to figure out how to fix it, even complex things, and he had the ability to to, to get the job done. Now, I wish some I mean, of that would have rubbed off on me. I really do. If something goes bad wrong in my house, I'm probably going to call one of you to, to come help me out. I, I wish some I mean, of that would have rubbed off, but I have an excuse. Uh, during those years, I was, I was chasing after the lovely Claire uh, Knowles at the time who's now my wife. And so I was head over heels, and that's my excuse. I and mean, by the way, just on the record, I would rather be married to her than be a handyman. Can I get an amen? All right, yeah, amen. Amen. I'll call you. I'm glad to be married to Claire. So, but, but I, you know, I, I didn't spend that time with Dad, but Dad had the wisdom and the ability to, to fix things, complex things. And that's what we see here in this text. When it came to the complex issue of how a holy God that must punish sin can forgive guilty sinners. How in the world could that happen? How's God going to figure that one out? The answer is the cross. The cross allowed a holy God to punish sin by punishing punishing his son in our place. And because Jesus Christ took our punishment, you and I can be forgiven of our sin. By the way, John Piper says it. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Isn't that good? You see, God has the wisdom and the ability to provide salvation for you and for me. And the cross is what reminds us of that fact. Men carried it out. God orchestrated it for our salvation and for his glory. So we see in this text the... The nature of the Bible. And we see in this text the, the nature of the cross. But third, we see something about the nature of the resurrection. The nature of the resurrection. Look what the Bible says there in verse 30. After he says, Jesus died and was laid in a tomb. Verse 30. And by the way, again, I don't like to cue you for amens. I think they should just come naturally. Okay? I, I, don't, I, I think you should just be so on the edge of your seat as I preach the Bible that amens should just just, just be free-flowing. Okay. Okay. So I don't like to cue you, but I'm about to cue you right now. Verse 30 is a verse that demands an amen. You ready? So let me just read it for you. But God raised him from the dead. Isn't that good news? He was was crucified, he died on the cross, he was buried, but God raised him from the dead. Here's the truth about the resurrection I want you to see. Jesus was raised from the dead, and there is proof... He makes the claim in verse 30, but then he gives us five pieces of evidence that help us to understand that Jesus Christ really did defeat death and he is alive today. So let me just walk you through these five pieces of evidence. Number one, I want you to see the witnesses. Witnesses, look in verse 31. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. So here's what Paul's saying. Jesus Christ really is alive, and there are witnesses to attest to this fact. Over in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul talks to the church in Corinth about the resurrection, he mentions that after his resurrection, he stayed on the earth for a time, and he appeared to hundreds of witnesses. And then Paul makes an interesting comment. He says most of them are still alive today. So if you're wondering if Jesus is really alive, just go find a witness and ask him about it. And here's the deal. If you have hundreds of people all saying the same thing, that holds up, doesn't it? It, You take any court case in U.S. history, and if you have hundreds of people saying the same thing, bearing the same eyewitness testimony, that's going to hold up in any court of law. And Paul's saying there are many witnesses. After he rose from the dead, he spent some time with us. He spent some time with his people. He, he appeared to, to, to his followers, and there are witnesses to that fact. The second piece of evidence is this. Changed followers. Changed followers are, are evidence the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Look in verse 31. It says, He appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So he's mentioning here his disciples. And remember the condition of his disciples when Jesus Christ was arrested and crucified? When he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed by the kiss of Judas, and the soldiers came, the disciples scattered. They fled for their lives. And Peter, I mean the leader of the group, Peter, denied Jesus Christ how many times? Three times. So the disciples were scared and timid and fearful, and absent. But here, Paul says, those folks that he appeared to after he was risen from the dead, now they are everywhere bearing witness to Christ. They are preaching the message now. Now, how do you account for the fact that a, a, a band of scared, timid disciples became bold preachers of the gospel? You know what happened? They saw Jesus alive from the dead. And that changed everything. It changed everything. So the fact that these timid disciples became bold preachers uh, is a piece of evidence that Jesus Christ really is alive. Here's the third piece of evidence, the existence of the church. Look what it says in verse 31. It says, These folks who he appeared to are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This is He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. So here's what's interesting. Paul rode into uh, this city, Antioch, Pisidia, and he shared good news. Folks got saved. And, and then those folks and others in the first century who heard the good news, they embraced Christ, and they shared the good news with others. And the people they shared the good news with shared it with others. And then those folks took the good news they had embraced and shared it with others. All the way until it made it, listen, to your life. There's an unbroken chain of people sharing life-transforming good news. And that good news made it to my house, literally. When I was nine years of age and my pastor walked me through the gospel and I embraced the good news about Jesus Christ and I was saved and I was transformed and I'm still being transformed by His grace There's an unbroken line of good news proclaimers. So listen, the very fact that there's a church called Longview Point meeting here today is evidence that Jesus Christ really is alive. He's changing lives through his gospel message. But there's another piece of evidence. We've talked about witnesses and changed followers in the existence of the church But fourth, I want you to see the witness of Scripture. The Bible said in the Old Testament that Jesus Christ would be raised. Look what it says in verse 33. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul says the Old Testament spoke of the resurrection. And he mentions this verse in Psalm chapter 2. He's saying this, this Psalm implies that Jesus who died was resurrected because the Father here exalts him and puts him at his right hand. So this verse implies the resurrection. And so Paul's saying this should be no surprise. If you read the Scriptures, they point to a God who is not defeated by death, but a God who is raised and who reigns over all. And Jesus Christ dying on the cross and being buried and rising from the dead is all part of what God said was going to happen in the Old Testament. So the the witness of Scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ really is alive. But here's the final piece of evidence. The empty tomb. The empty tomb. Look what it says in verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore he says also in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption... For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body decayed and turned back to dust. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Jesus was put in a tomb, he didn't stay there. He he, he did not decay, he was raised before he decayed, before he returned to dust. The tomb is empty. Now listen, if there were a tomb in the the area around Jerusalem that had the bones of Jesus in it, we would all be in trouble. Because that would mean that Jesus was a false prophet who could not give us eternal life because he never defeated death himself. But guess what? His body never was corrupted. It never decayed. He was raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. Think about this: if the Jewish religious leaders in the Roman uh, government that area had wanted to stop Christianity dead in its tracks, and they wanted to badly, all they had to do was produce a body. Right? Here's your Messiah. Here's your King. Here's your Savior. He's decaying. He's dead they never found the body because the tomb is empty. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was raised from the dead and there was proof. There is proof and this leads me to the final point. We've discussed the nature of the Bible and the nature of the cross and the nature of the resurrection, but fourth and last, I want to say a word about the nature of salvation. The nature of salvation And there are three things I want you to see about the salvation that God offers, this message of salvation that we are studying today. First of all, I want you to see that you can't save yourself. When it comes to salvation, you can't save yourself. Look what it says in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything... From which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So through this man, Jesus Christ, forgiveness is proclaimed to you. It's found in him. And you can can experience right standing with God that you could not experience by keeping the law. In other words, you can't save yourself. Now, I love the ESV uh, version of the Bible. I study from it. I preach from it. I love this Bible. It's it's very uh, accurate. When it comes to the original languages, and it just reads well, and I I really enjoy the ESV version of the Bible. But they got it wrong in verse 39. And I'm not sure why they did this, but look in verse 39. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word freed there is the word dikaio in the Greek language. It's literally the word justified. So it reads better like this. By him, everyone who believes is justified from everything, which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification is the reality that in Christ, God declares you not guilty. To be justified means you have a right standing with God. Here's what he's saying. In Christ, you are offered justification. You're offered the the reality that you're not guilty guilty. In Christ, because Christ paid for your sins, you can have a right standing with God through Christ, and you could not have a right standing with God by keeping the law. In other words, you can't save yourself. He was talking to folks in the first century who believed that if they just did the right things and kept the law in a certain way, then they would be justified before God. But he's saying, you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. The only way you can experience justification a right standing with God is through the grace offered to you through Jesus Christ. Listen to me. You cannot be justified. You cannot be saved by doing good things because you're not good enough. No matter how many good things you do, you've you've sinned against God. And that sin makes you guilty, and that sin separates you from the Lord, and the only way to have a relationship with the Lord is to have your sin washed away. So stop trying to save yourself. You can't do it. You're not good enough, because good enough is perfect. And no one in this room is perfect. For example, let's talk about the law for a moment. Let's just say that we put the Ten Commandments up on this screen. And we said... Anyone in this room that has perfectly kept the Ten Commandments, stand up and let us applaud you. Would anybody in this room stand up? No, we've all blown it. The Bible says if if you've disobeyed one commandment, you're guilty of them all. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So stop stop trying to save yourself. you got to be perfect, and you're not perfect. You can't save yourself. Here's the second thing. Salvation is available only through Christ. can't save yourself, so how can I be saved? It's available only through Christ. Did you notice what it said in verse 38? It says, Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, the man Christ Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In other words, if you want to experience forgiveness, it's through this man, Jesus Christ the one who left the splendor and glory of heaven and came to earth and took on human flesh. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He died in your place and my place. He took all of our sins on himself. And the punishment that we deserve was poured out upon him who died in our place. And then he, he was buried and he rose from the grave. And he's alive today. And he is our only hope. You cannot experience forgiveness apart from Christ. Not going to happen. Jesus said it like this in John fourteen six. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way to God other than through Christ. Because only in Christ can you have your sins washed away. And so you can't save yourself. But salvation is available through and only through Jesus Christ. Which leads me to this final thought about the nature of salvation. You ready? Take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. When it comes to this offer of salvation, this offer of forgiveness, this offer of being justified before God, being, 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 being declared not guilty because your sins have been punished in Christ, when it comes to salvation, it's a gift that God offers you. And now... The ball is in your court. You've got to decide. Am I going to take it, embrace it, or am I going to leave it on the table and reject this wonderful offer of forgiveness of sins? Now here's why that's important. There are people in this room this morning that are going to leave it. There are people in this room that are not saved, far from God, headed for an eternity in hell. And this morning you are hearing a clear explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard that God loves you and wants to give you as a gift forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ. And there are some in this room that are hearing that, but when the service is over, they're going to get up, they're going to walk out those doors unsaved. They're going to leave that offer of forgiveness, eternal life, on the table. Once again, they're going to turn their back to God and say, no thanks, not for me. But perhaps, perhaps there are some, or perhaps there are many today that say, I need a Savior. The Holy Spirit is speaking to my heart. I know this message is for me. I need Jesus. I want to accept that free gift of eternal life. I want to trust in His finished work. I can't save myself. I need Christ in my life. At the end of the service, I'm going to call for a response. And If you're here today and you say, Wait, I, I don't know that I'm saved. I don't have that relationship with God. I don't know where I'll spend eternity. I've never been forgiven of my sins. Today can be the day when you take it. You embrace that message and place your faith in Christ. You can't save yourself. Your only hope is the finished work of Jesus who died on the cross for you and rose from the grave. I'm not being flippant when I say take it or leave it. This is in the Bible. Did you notice what he said in verse 40? Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look you scoffers, he's quoting Habakkuk here. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. You know that verse in Habakkuk is talking about? In Habakkuk, God is saying to his people, because of your disobedience, because of your rebellion, I'm raising up a nation called the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, and I'm sending them to bring devastating judgment. Notice, don't be a scoffer. Judgment is coming. You need to run to the Lord. Judgment is coming. That's the the context of that verse. So The application is clear, isn't it? Judgment is coming. One day we will stand before God. Don't scoff at this message of salvation. Embrace Christ today. While you have opportunity, be saved. Don't leave it on the table. Take it. Embrace it. Follow Christ. That's what this passage is about. So you can't save yourself. But the good news is salvation is available through Christ. Take it or leave it. Here's the big picture, the point of this sermon. This is in your notes. The Bible tells a compelling story of salvation made possible by the finished work of Christ. The Bible tells a compelling story of salvation made possible, made available through the finished work of Christ. Listen, this story calls for a response. Six times the Titanic was warned. There's disaster in front of you. Six times they were warned of of icebergs that could cause catastrophic damage. And six times no one responded to the message that could have saved the ship. This morning, this message calls for a response. Will you take it? Or will you leave it?